we're going to jump right into the message. I've got some things I want to say, but I feel like it's preaching time. So let's go right into that. We're talking about when people are big and God is small. When people are big and God is small. If you want to get to a place in your Bible where we'll eventually land for a moment, you can find Genesis 2 in your Bible. But we're going to be bouncing back and forth in, in several different scriptures. And so I put those on the screen for you so that we can move along quickly tonight. But feel free to follow along in your Bible or whatever you use for that. OK, but first two weeks of the series, we, we've covered the fear of man, week number one, and the fear of the Lord, week number two. We've learned two big principles, okay? We fear man because we do not fear God or because we do not fear God enough. Last week we learned God must be bigger to you than people are or people will control your life. Obviously the messages uh, had... Uh, a lot more meat than just those two statements. But if you wanted to boil the first two messages down to two sentences, that's a very, very good way, concise way to do that. The next several weeks, our sermons in the series will focus on specific ways that we fear man. And, and, and we're also going to think about how we can find help and, and, and even healing from these fears by growing in the fear of the Lord. So tonight... We're going to be talking about one of our most fundamental fears, and that's the fear of exposure. The fear of exposure. Now, we've all had the dream of exposure. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's not a dream, it's a nightmare. Where you show up to school and you don't got your pants on. You know what I'm talking about? I'll just, I'll leave it right there at that. And it's kind of humorous, but at the same time, is it not a window into the very real thing that gnaws at our souls? Truly. The fear of being exposed. Not like literally, but being exposed for who we really are. This fear has been, I think, deeply woven into our lives from a very young age. Why would we dream about it if we don't worry about it? We do worry about it. So let's talk about it in more detail tonight. My, my main points will be in the form of four questions as we study together. Here's the first. What is the fear of exposure? Well, it's simple. The fear of exposure is the fear that other people will remove our facade and reveal who we really are. We see this manifested in a variety of ways. I think they're probably on your handout. Fear of personal failure. Why don't you see if you can identify some of these in your life? Fear of personal failure, not, not measuring up to our friends or our parents or our boss's expectations. That's the fear of personal failure. Being exposed that we are not good enough. There's the fear of financial instability. Other people thinking that you're not wealthy. Other people thinking that you've not been wise or smart with your money. There's the fear of being perceived as an intellectual failure. So you lie about how well you did in school. Or maybe for some reason, because of the pressure of the culture, you are embarrassed to admit you didn't attend college, which, by the way, you shouldn't be embarrassed by that. 
There's fear of being seen as a hypocrite. Because you despise hypocrisy as most others around you do. And you don't want to be a version of the thing that the people around you despise. Fear of disappointing others who have an elevated opinion of us. We love we love to know that people think good about us and not just good. We love those people in our life that think a lot of us. And so what we fear is that if they think a lot of us as parents and they really revere our parenting, we fear our kids doing anything in front of them that might reveal to us we've messed up as parents. If, if we feel that, that they hold us in high regard because of how we serve here at church and our position at church. Well, we don't want to do anything to jeopardize the appearances of how we look at church. Because that is connected to the, their lofty view of us. And we love people thinking well of us. That's a fear. Or there's a fear that has to do with your image being thought of as too ugly or too skinny or too overweight and constantly thinking of that fear. Listen, left unchecked, the fear of being exposed can be the driving force in our life rather than living in the fear of the Lord. Now, I hope you notice that some of these fears are not good things. For instance, none of us should want to be a hypocrite, right? Catch this though. If the driving force of your desire here is to not be found out as a hypocrite rather than not actually being a hypocrite, you are living by the fear of man and not God. Did, did that compute? Did, did, did those things connect? Yes. If you fear people thinking you're a hypocrite more than you fear actually being a hypocrite, that's not good. Why is this fear of exposure so terrifying to us? Why is it? Well, in this book, Losing Our Virtue, I read this book actually in college. David Wells says this. This is amazing. He says, we know ourselves to be something other than what we hoped. And this revelation often comes when others come to see accidentally and without warning a side to us about which we feel vulnerable and embarrassed. We felt, feel as if we have been wounded by what they now know. So the fear of scorn is part of the experience of shame, as is anxiety. That's why exposure is terrifying. Be because when somebody comes alongside of us and sees a version of us by accident, or sees a version of us without, us, without warning us, so now we've lost control, we cannot control the narrative. We cannot control how we hide this and how we cover this up. We have no time to hit the backspace button. Without warning, we've been exposed. That terrifies us to lose that kind of control over our image. Brings anxiety. We fear scorn. We fear losing a position that we hold to high regard. That's the fear of exposure. The fear that other people will remove our facade and reveal who we really are. Here's the second question. Why do we fear exposure? Why do these fears loom so large in our life? Here's why. Because of sin and the shame related to sin. So this is where we get to the book of Genesis because the struggle goes all the way back to the fall. The immediate results of Adam and Eve's sin was shame. 
And then it was separation from God. Once they were separated from God, their attitude then toward one another changed. Before the fall, here was their condition, how they saw one, one another. Genesis 2.25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed, exposed and okay with it. After they sinned, Genesis 3.7, and the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed, so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. What just happened? Well, well, the fall is the single greatest event to afflict the human race, is it not? Shame didn't exist before sin. And now sin cannot exist without shame. Get that? Sin always leads to some kind of shame. And if you're exposed, then there is, of course, this shame mixed with embarrassment. If other people see what you are and who you are. But even if you're not found out, but you're a child of God, there is still inward shame that brings that, that, that you experience in your heart. And here's why. Catch this. Sin is fundamentally disgusting. Did you hear me? Sin is fundamentally reprehensible. Sin is utterly unacceptable to God. And for you to sugarcoat it would be a, be a grave mistake. It's disgusting, it's reprehensible, and it's utterly unacceptable to God. Here's what shame is. It's, it's the feeling of being disgusting. Shame is the feeling of being reprehensible. Shame is the feeling of being unacceptable to God. So Adam and Eve, because they sinned, should have felt shame. They should have felt a need for covering. They should have felt exposed because that's what sin does. But hold on. While feeling guilt before God and even shame before one another is right in our sin, it brings about the fruits of repentance the way we try to fix our shame is typically not right or sufficient. See, while it's true that, that in our sin we should be ashamed, that, that shame is not something that sinful creatures like you and I typically handle very well. That's proven in how Adam and Eve handled their shame. Do you see what happened in the garden continues to happen to this day? Because of shame, there entered the human heart, the temptation to hide and cover shame on our own. To retreat inward. To build walls of self-protection. To pretend to be someone else. Ed Welch wrote the book that we're basing this study off of. And he writes this, it's sobering. Every day is Halloween. Putting on your mask is a regular part of our morning ritual, just like brushing our teeth and eating breakfast. Underneath the mask are people who are terrified that there will be an unveiling. And indeed, the mask and other coverings will one day be removed. If we feel exposed by people, we will feel devastated by God. One way to avoid God's eyes is to live as if fear of other people is our deepest problem. They are big, not God. This is what we do day in and day out to avoid being exposed. Have you ever been at odds with somebody or just kind of your relationship's not right? And it's like when you go to church, you go to work or you go to school or whatever the case might be, you just don't want to make eye contact. We kind of get that way with God a little bit. We try to avoid his eyes. 
We, we try to live day in and day out with, with, with this, this safety that we aren't going to be exposed to God or others. Dr. David Harris, one of my favorite authors, our associate pastor, <laughs> articulated this brilliantly <laughs> when he said this. I didn't put it on the screen, but, but I should have. It's worth it. He said, our hearts become like self-focused PR firms looking to spin or disguise every bit of self-revelation in order to avoid other people knowing who we really are. See, presidents of the United States have always paid someone to be their PR person. What are they? Big companies. They have somebody. They have an expert that, 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 that is paid to, to, to help them stay face in the public. And it doesn't matter what that PR expert has to do. He will spin the truth and he'll spin it again and he'll spin it again and he'll spin it again in order to make the person that is paying him look good and keep looking good. And we, David said, become our own PR firm. Looking to spin and disguise every bit of self-revelation in order to avoid other people knowing who we really are. Question one, what is the fear of exposure? Well, it's the fear that other people will remove our facade and reveal who we really are. Why do we fear exposure? Well, we fear it because of sin and the shame related to it. Notice the third question. How do we demonstrate the fear of exposure? It's important for us all to admit, obviously, that we try to avoid being exposed. But what are some of the specific ways we behave when we're trying to avoid this? I got the first one up there. Idolatry. Idolatry. We demonstrate this in idolatry. We escape idols to idols. I'm sorry for the typo. Rather than fleeing to God. In an attempt to avoid being known, we build for ourselves idols to hide and escape. And these false gods of our own making offer a perceived haven for us. But I have found that the problem with this kind of escapism is that we become even more ashamed in the things we try to hide or take refuge in. For instance, we can run to an idol of work. Work is God ordained. God wants us to work. But he doesn't want us to make an idol out of it. Why do we run to work as an idol? Why do we flee to that as a haven? Well, because if we're viewed as busy or successful, it covers up other perceived weaknesses. For instance, if we're failing in marriage, not failing in something else such as our career makes us feel better and look better. Work becomes that thing sometimes because we know we're failing in so many other areas that matter more. There's image management. Image management. This is about managing perceptions, even if those perceptions are not connected to the truth. How many want to guess what is the number one way in, we, in which we manage our image today? Social media. I mean, there are people of all ages on social media now. It's one of the number one ways in which Americans, well, really just human beings, interact with each other today. I'm not against social media. I'm on social media, but I'm tempted often to, to, to put out these perceptions of myself on social media that don't connect to truth. We see it all the time. We see everybody's highlight reel. But we don't see their behind the scenes footage. 
Most of the time, a married couple is not going to put a video of their latest fight on Facebook. But they'll put a picture of their latest date. They're, they're putting a perception as though their marriage is all together. They'll put their fall family picture on Instagram with the best filter they could find. But they won't put a picture of when they were all screaming at each other, trying to get the kids to behave and take the picture. Yeah. And I'm not saying you should, by the way. I'm just saying that we are image managers and we don't even know it sometimes. And let's just be honest, social media isn't the only platform through, through which we exercise image management. I think church is a place. Church is a place where we put on a mask when we get out of the minivan. And we, we take off the mask when we get back in the minivan. Are you with me tonight? There's drugs, legal substances, abuse of alcohol or pain medications. These things provide an avenue of escape, a way to avoid facing the reality of who we really are. There's pornography and, and sexual fantasy, the drug for Christian men today. Things provide escape through sexual pleasure apart from an actual intimate, committed relationship in which you are truly known by your spouse for who you really are. Person on the other part of the screen doesn't have to know who you really are. You don't have to be exposed to the person on the other side of the screen. Eating disorders, gluttony or self-starvation, whichever extreme are fueled by misuse of the body. God has given you these things only heightened shame and fear, but we run to them instead of running to God. This is how the fear of Exposure demonstrates itself. There's another one in our relationship with others. Not just in idolatry, but in our relationship with others. We seek to expose others. Please don't miss this tonight. We don't just cover up and hide and escape ourselves like Adam and Eve did. The great irony is that we often find a sick pleasure in seeing others uncovered and exposed. Here's what we're thinking when we do this. We're thinking, hey, my shame is diminished, at least in my own mind, when compared to that of someone else. So how do you know if you struggle with this? Well, here's a very, very simple diagnostic. What is your heart response to someone confessing sin to you? Are you grieved? Are you sorrowful? Are you moved to compassion? Or are you self-righteous? Maybe even breathing a sigh of, of spiritual relief because based on what was exposed in their life, you aren't that bad. How do you respond when someone is revealed to have been engulfed in scandal and, and engulfed in deception? How do you respond? See, I, I do think the Christians should certainly respond for gratitude for justice, but we should also respond with an attitude, uh, should not respond with an attitude that says they got theirs. They had it coming. Or check this out. When, when, when your sin is exposed, how quickly do you become a defense attorney for yourself? And start picking apart someone else's sin who might also be involved. How quickly do you somehow find a way to make others at least as guilty as you are in your own sin? This uncovering of others, I think, 
is something our culture has become masterful at. And that's primarily due to this modern technology that, that we have in our cell phones that make it possible for you to uncover a multitude of items about other people without leaving the comfort of your own bedroom. People make a living out of doing this today. I don't know if you're following the Kyle Rittenhouse case. It's very interesting to me. I don't want to get into all the, the nuances of if he's innocent or guilty. That's not the point of the illustration. But he's the young man that 17 years old carried a gun uh, into uh, was it Wisconsin or Wyoming. Wisconsin and ended up, uh, there's a bunch of rioters there, ended up shooting, uh, I think, three folks and, and is in a jury trial right now. I, I, I get, I'm fascinated with that kind of stuff. I like following that kind of stuff. And, and I've been watching it and it's crazy that the number one source of, of evidence in this case is cell phone footage. Cell phone footage. I'm not against technology. I'm, I'm glad that we can capture those kind of things. I'm just pointing out the fact that uncovering people's mistakes is so easy to do today. It is so simple. All you got to have is a cell phone camera. And so we become hardwired to do one of two things. Become the person who's always trying to expose people or make sure that we can never be exposed. God help us, church, to not be obsessed with knowing the public sins of others better than private sins of our own heart. Here's the, here's the last one. This is the way it demonstrates itself in our relationship with God. We repress instead of confess. When we're confronted with the reality of who we really are and then the Holy Spirit helps us to see our sin, I think we can sometimes use spiritual means to repress those convictions instead of bringing them to the throne of the Lord. One of the most dangerous ways we do this in all places is in spiritual practices. We read our Bible and we pray and in our prayer essentially perform for God. Telling him what we think he wants to hear from us. So spiritual disciplines, most of all prayer, I think, are meant to help us come out of hiding before God. But in our perverse fear of being exposed above everything else, we even try to hide from God while talking to God. We repress instead of confess. And oftentimes, I'm going to say it again, Christians will repress by being heavily involved in church activity. Not just prayer. But they'll attend faithfully and that's good and they'll serve faithfully and that's good and they'll give good and, and that's good. But they will do it all to the exclusion of being right with God. They'll be actively involved because their service to the Lord, at least in their mind, will make up for their sin against the Lord. They know that should they be exposed in A, B, C and D, it would not be good. But so long as they are right at church, which is box E, it makes them feel better about A, B, C, and D. They repress by using a spiritual means or a spiritual practice to do it. That's how the fear of exposure demonstrates itself. But what is the solution? That's the last question tonight. What is the solution? You probably know by now it involves the fear of the Lord. But how, does the, how can we fear God in such a way that, that it helps us with this fear of exposure? Well, you open up to the gaze of God. 
open to the gaze of God. Consider this. The, the first thing that we are tempted to do when we hear a message on fear of exposure is to think this. I have got to stop worrying about what people think of me. We make the immediate solution to this problem about people. That's not the first solution, though. For the Christian, it starts in their relationship with God. I mean, doesn't God already know what's in your heart? Yeah, of course. But it helps us to daily tell God to look. And then to ask him what he sees when he looks. One regular way to do this is to pray what is called the prayer of honesty. Prayer of honesty is a way to open to God um, and ourselves. I think about what is really going on in our hearts and in order for that, that truth telling to take place both with God and others. Now, this prayer, I think, is provided in your handout. It is. So be a good one this week to pray every day. Psalms chapter 139. Now, would you turn there in your Bible real quick? Would you do that? I wasn't going to do this. I think I, I want to. Because I want you to see how this psalm lays out. I won't preach it, but it's 24 verses and I, I want to do what I wasn't planning on doing. I want to read it. It's, it's not going to take me long. I want you to follow it because I want you to see how this lays out and why this, this climaxes in the very last two verses, which is the prayer of honesty. But what comes before this popular prayer of honesty? Search me, O God, to know my heart. Let, let's study the theology that comes before this. Okay. I want you to try to find two characteristics about God in the first 22 verses. They have to do with his omnipresence. He's everywhere. And his omniscience. He's all knowing. He knows everything. Verse one. Oh, Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Om omniscience. Thou knowest my down sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Here's his omnipresence. Thou compasseth my path and my lying down and art equated with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue. There's his omniscience. But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Omnipresence. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I free, flee from thy presence? Omnipresence. If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. Omnipresence. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. Omniscience. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Time out. Why did he say that? Because if God created you, he knows you. He didn't put 10 of you on a conveyor belt and give 10 of you the same DNA and the same fingerprint. There is one of you in history. One of you. He masterfully created you and designed you. He knows the size of your kidneys. He knows your heart. He knows if your second toe is bigger than your big toe. Mine's not. He knows if you have an innie or an Audi when it comes to your belly button. He created you. He does. He knows you. All right. said I wasn't going to preach. I'm on uh, verse 15. My substance was not hid from thee. 
When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written. Told you he knows the size of your kidneys, which in continuance were fashioned. When as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Time out. He knows everything about you, but yet the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says he still thinks precious thoughts about you. If I knew everything about you, I wouldn't think precious thoughts about you. If you knew everything about me, you wouldn't think precious thoughts about me naturally. But God in his omniscience and omnipresence knows where I go, knows what I think, knows what I say, and he still loves me. 18, if I should count them, they are more number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely that will slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and not I greed with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Now it all climaxes in this. Now that you know that God is omnipresent and all-knowing, you pray this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Why would you pray, search me, O God, when you already know he knows you? Why would you take the time to do that? Verse 24 answers, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's why. Because you know God knows, but you don't know what God knows. Are you with me? Everybody has blind spots. Blind spots that even the closest person to you can't see. But because God sees everything He sees even the parts of your heart that are prone to wickedness. He sees the parts of you that you've not yet acted on, but that are very present in your heart. He knows when you're bitter, even though you keep saying you're not. He knows you're truly lazy, even though you're busy. He knows when when our marriages stink, even though we pretend they don't. He knows when we're wearing a mask, even when we don't even know we're wearing a mask because we've gotten so good at wearing a mask. Are you with me tonight? This is why we pray, God, search me. I know you know me and I don't know myself. I'm so prone to deceive myself. So we pray daily with this prayer of honesty. Hmm. I think we ought to be consumed by what God already knows about us. And that will help us to not be consumed by what others think about us. We ought to be consumed in our prayer closet with finding out What God knows about us that we don't know about ourselves instead of all throughout the day being consumed about what people are thinking about us. So so how do we overcome this? You just open up yourself every day to the gaze of God. You pray, God, look upon my heart and then tell me what you see. It's a dangerous prayer, but essential Number two, cling to your grace in Christ. This is why I'm so thankful Brother Daniel chose that song tonight. Because all of our shame 
accompanied with our sin that we don't want to be exposed, must come to grips with this, that in Jesus we are fully, perfectly, completely known, and yet in Jesus we are fully, perfectly, completely loved. Do you know the best verse that addresses this whole notion of the fear of exposure? It's exactly the verse that the second verse of above the throne of God is, 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 uh, is written, is based on. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, that's God, hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that's you, who knew, Jesus knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's not just a verse that you need to know in order to get saved. That's a verse that you need to memorize and meditate upon and live by after you're saved. Because with your sin comes a measure of shame. And your default response, thanks to your great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve. Your default response is to take your shame and to make you an apron. And to cover it up and to hide And so you had to go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and remind yourself that God isn't out to get you. That's not who he is. He's a just God. He's a God that is holy. He's a God that will chastise his children. We understand that about God. But you will never, you will never be abandoned by God. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 1. And and so why is this important? Because it keeps you from hiding who you really are. When you go to prayer and you're ashamed because of your sin and you don't want to talk to God about it, you want to talk around it. You need to remind yourself God already knows, but even though he knows, he loves me because I am in his son, Jesus Christ. Cling to that grace. It's not a license to sin. Don't take advantage of it. But cling to it. Lastly, give yourself to the fellowship of the church. This is the solution. I believe Jesus should be believed, trusted, and followed in the local church, especially as it relates to our sin. Hear me, living in Christian community, I think, helps us live this out as we we build these open and transparent relationships with others. We begin to lose our fear of man. And, And these kind of relationships inside of a church, when we aren't together every single day, they don't happen just because you come to church three times a week for a month. This is built when you are serving in the trenches with people for years. When you're going to connection group for months. When you're going to, to, to as many services as you can and serving with people and, and giving with people and rallying around the same cause with people. If you give this time, these kind of, uh, of relationships will organically come up in your life. Ed Welch says this, when we think of ourselves as alone and isolated, we will always be prone to fear other people. Isolation and the fear of man are close companions. Yet when we truly understand that God has called us to participate in a larger family, we are free. Church begins to feel a little more like a family sitting with us in our living room. Better yet, we feel like a family sitting together at the feet of Jesus, sitting around the throne. With family, there is no self-consciousness, no embarrassment, no fear. 
Find somebody, Christian. Or find a small group of somebodies within your church that become more than just people you sing and serve with on Sundays. Rather, they become the one or the two or the three or four people that you don't fear. You're an open book with these people. You have nothing to prove with these people. Your honesty to them about yourself will be met with a balance of grace and truth. And you know that because it's been proven over time. I'm talking about people who will listen empathetically to you, but will preach boldly to you at the same time. People that will pray fervently for you and yet hold your feet to the fire with intense accountability at the same time. People in your church that will forbear long with you, but also know when to say enough is enough to you. People that will love you for who you are, but will love you too much to leave you that way. Get those people in your life and keep them close. Unfortunately, Christians tend to repel those people because they don't like vulnerability. And, and they are afraid of, of tearing down the facade. And I'm not saying that I have to be that guy in every church member's life. Please don't make me that guy. I can't be. But I pray regularly. I go through a prayer list of church people by name. And I'm pretty aware who has a friend in this church and who doesn't. I'm pretty aware of people that just come and go and come and go and come and go. And all you know at this church is the back of somebody's head. And I'm telling you in love, you're missing out. Well, what do I do? What do I do? How do I get? You just do life with them. You naturally and organically become their friend. What do you do to get a friend? You show yourself friendly. What does that mean? More than a handshake. More than a happy Lord's Day. Man. It's saying, hey, why, why don't you and your family come over to our house on Friday? Play some games or, hey, why don't you come over Saturday night and watch the game together? Or, hey, how about you and another mom? Let's take our kids to the park on Saturday and we'll sit around and hang out. And you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again and you do it again. And that way, when something comes up in your life and you need somebody, somebody is there. Charles Swindoll says that we cannot be in the rent a friend business. You know what that means? That means that, that, that when we fall and when we fail and when we stumble, we can't go find a friend to rent. He says this, you ought to make friendships while you're on your feet. True, vulnerable, transparent friendships so that when you fall, you're not written friends. They're coming to you. Oh, it's so important. The, the irony is that the fear of being exposed to men is to get closer to men. The solution to the fear of man and being exposed to man is to find another man or woman you can be close to. Because that's Hebrews 10 speaks of the just the, the, the awesomeness of close covenant like relationships. 